Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. We're going to start in Joshua 10, verse 28. Joshua 10, verse 28, and we'll see how far we get. I'm ready to go through 13, but don't get too freaked out because this is uh, kind of rattling off a lot of names of kings and towns in Israel that the kings don't exist. The towns may or may not exist. Most of them don't. I'm not even sure where many of them are historically. And uh, really looking at the faithfulness of Joshua. There have been a few hiccups as we've studied through the book of Joshua. It began with the Lord encouraging Joshua to be strong and of good courage and not to be dismayed. And there were times when they made mistakes. The Battle of Jericho was a good battle, a battle of victory, but the next battle, the Battle of Ai, uh, a smaller town, which the Israelis considered only two or 3,000, but it was a town that we read in the battle report some 12,000 were killed, so it was really larger than it may appear when you see how many people died in their initial army that they brought to deal with this. And uh, it really, in some sense, showed the confidence of Israel. They believed God that one would chase a thousand. God had promised such a thing. So they were willing to go against greater odds, knowing that God was with them. But what they did not know on this occasion, God was not with them. God had not went with them because of one man, Achan, who had took the accursed things, the spoil or the booty of Jericho was to be dedicated to the temple of the Lord, but he took silver and gold and some items of a Babylonian garments, things that he desired, and it caused sin to be in the camp, and God didn't go with them. But also there was another failure in the sense that Joshua, as a military expert by this time, uh, he had battled, uh, battled in the wilderness against Amalek, against Og, against Bashan, um, Sion, the king of Bashan. And he had battled before and now having victory over Jericho, He developed a battle plan that seemed to make sense, but he nowhere do we read of him asking the Lord before they went into battle. And he did fall on his face after their defeat, after 36 Israelis died because of their failure, and he discovered that there was sin in the camp. God gave them victory then over Ai after that was dealt with, and then... We had another occasion where the people of Gibeon, not too far away from where the Israelites were staying, they had um, pretended to be from a faraway country. 
And they even told Joshua and the rulers there that we know that God has given you this land, so we're coming from a faraway country, and uh, we want to make peace with you. And yet they were a city nearby. And actually, they were one of the great cities. So this caused anger of uh, kings in that area to come against the people of Gibeon, of which we closed out last week with Israel and Joshua uh, defeating those five kings that had come against Gibeon, and they came to their aid because they had come under the protection then of Israel. So there have been some mistakes, and there have been um, kind of a ebbing back and forth in the sense there have been some strong stands of faith where they trusted totally in the Lord, and at other times they tried to go out on their own with their own thoughts, uh, their own decisions, and they would mess up royally. But we don't read of any of that uh, beginning here. And really, it began when Joshua being in tune with the Lord again in the beginning of chapter 10, but we're going to pick up in verse 28 tonight. Now, some have viewed this uh, as a holy war, and a holy war, if you look it up, as far as the dictionary is concerned, it speaks about a war that deems to be justified because of religious beliefs or differences in religious beliefs. The Crusades against Jerusalem or the Muslims who had occupied Jerusalem at that time that began in the 1100s, they were deemed as a holy war. And yet Israel's conquest of the promised land was a judgment of God. God was using Israel as his instrument of judges, of judgment over a people that he had condemned or at least spoken to Abraham about probably around five to six hundred years earlier. And at that time to Abraham, he said the iniquities of the Amorites have not yet been complete. He talked to God, talking to Abram, talked about his descendants going into captivity for over 400 years. God gave opportunity for the people to repent, and they chose not to. And so tonight we'll read of God hardening their hearts just as he had hardened the heart of Pharaoh uh, some 400 years plus earlier. But it wasn't that Israel was more deserving why they were occupying the promised land. God even told them this in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. It tells us, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. He repeated that twice in verse, verses 4 and 5. That you may, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your father, 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God has not given you this land to possess because of your righteousness a third time. He says this, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God is going to fulfill his pledge, his promise, his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Israel is going to occupy the land. And the occupants of the land will be destroyed as judgment from God. But God is going to use Israel as that instrument of judgment. So, Father, we pray you bless the teaching of your word tonight as we get into our teaching here in the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Bless us, we we pray, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. I was thinking about this as I was heading home this afternoon um, after studying today. And um, just, I really love, I love the story of Joshua. Joshua is one of the great men of the Bible. He was a warrior. He was a worshiper. And I just love the account of Joshua. I am not always so keen in all of the stuff that we'll be looking at tonight because there's a lot of names, a lot of cities, a lot of kings, a lot of kingdoms that we're very unfamiliar with. And uh, it can get kind of tedious reading through these things, especially because I am not the greatest reader in the world. And when I have words that aren't familiar to me, I just usually don't sound them out too well. And so there's going to be some failures, just a warning up front. We'd already began looking at chapter 10 last week. The key verse is still the key verse of chapter 10, verse 8. So the same as I gave you last week. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so in verse 28, it tells us on that day, Joshua took Mekeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it, and he let none of them remain. So he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Verse 29, Joshua passed from Makeda and all the Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did also to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Verse 31, Joshua passed from Libna and all the Israel with him to Lachish, and they camped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hands of Israel. He took it on the second day, and he struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. And then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. Verse 34, from Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it, and they took it on that day. They struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were... In it, he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Verse 36, so Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they took it, and they struck it with the edge of the sword, its king, and all its cities. Verse 
and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining according to all that had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. And finally, 38 through 39. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all his cities, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he has done in Hebron. So he did in Debir and its king as he had done to Libna and its king. So coming off the victorious battle against the five kings who had come against the Gibeonites because they had made peace with Israel and Joshua and Israel came to rescue those they've made this covenant with. Now he continues the southern conquest. If you look on a Bible map of this, you pretty much uh, go from Gilgal where Israel was camped when they first entered into the promised land You can go directly west over to Jericho. And then from Jericho, you can keep going west and then head down kind of southwest, um, going all the way down toward Gaza. We're familiar with Gaza today because of the war that is currently going on with Israel and Gaza in that area. Although Gaza is not mentioned, um, I would say that Eglon is getting pretty close into that area. And some of these cities we're familiar with. Eglon will be a city of the Philistines later on in the book of Judges with Samson. We'll read about that city. So they're conquered, but the people will remain. And yet Israel will be the majority at this point. They'll take a stronghold of that area. And these cities of the Canaanites... They were beginning to fall like dominoes before Joshua and the children of Israel because the Lord fought for them and had given these nations into their hands. So, verses 40 through 43, finishing out chapter 10. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country, and the south, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, that's about a hundred miles slightly southwest of Jerusalem, or from Jericho, I should say, as far as Gaza, which is about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem, all the country of Goshen, and this is between Gaza, or Gaza and Gideon, and then as far as Gibeon, I may have said Gideon there, it might have been, it should have been a B instead of a D in my notes, but Gibeon, about 15 miles west of Jericho, and so they've, they've went quite a circuit. Um, you add up Kadesh Barnea, if you remember that, This is where Israel was initially supposed to enter into the promised land over 40 years earlier when the parents failed to go up and enter into the promised land. It was from Kadesh Barnea that the 12 spies went into the land, came back and said, we can't conquer it. It is fruitful. It is gorgeous, just like God promised. But the people are giants. And we're going to read about those giants tonight. The cities are fortified and large. There's no way that we can do this. 
Ten of the twelve spies spoke against the children of Israel to go into the land, caused the children of Israel to desire to go back to Egypt. And Joshua and Caleb stood and saying, we can take the land. And so you have a circuit, the furthest distance that I could measure, and this is by the the way the crow flies, uh, was 100 miles from Jericho, but you never travel that way. I mean, I know that my house from our church is northeast from here. And uh, I never just go straight northeast from here to get to my house because there's a lot of obstacles in the way. And so it takes a little longer because of that. And uh, I've tried shortcuts. And, um, and when I say that, either by riding bicycle or walking over to the church, it's a long walk when you do that. But I've tried it. And, uh, you know, there's obstacles when you do that. It's not a good path. So at least 100 miles, they're in battle. Um, it's much more than that. And yet God gave them victory. And they came back to their home base at Gilgal. Joshua and his men struck six cities that were all, and all that were in them. It sealed up the southern conquest of Israel because, verse 42, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Now we see that not all the Canaanites were destroyed at this time. God never intended for everyone to be destroyed all at once. Remember this, I love verse 30 of Exodus 23, verse 30. I love it, but we're going to back up to verse 29 to get a little bit bigger of the context. God says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. And now verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you increase and you inherit the land. So this was part of God's plan. We'll see, uh, even uh, in the conquest here, we have already reread of another king being killed when the city had already been conquered once. So city got conquered, they appointed a new king, new king went to battle and got conquered again. And so we're going to see these cities pop up again, some of them. But it was all part of God's plan as well. He said little by little, and I think so often this is kind of the method of our growth in our faith, and that God could, he could make us the perfect Christians that we desire to be all at once by the power of the Holy Spirit, if he desired to. But I believe he desires to work in us little by little in the sense that he allows us to build spiritual muscle, that we develop in such a way that we become strong believers in Jesus Christ. Again, in Judges 2, verses 21 through 23, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test them. So first of all, in Exodus 23, he says, I won't drive them out in one year because... You guys aren't big enough to occupy the land. And it would cause the land to become desolate, and it would cause the beast to become numerous. 
But in Joshua 2, verses 21 through 23, God says, I'll no longer drive them out because I want to leave them there to test you. Verse 22, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hands of Joshua. So God, we may not like it, but he gives us situations where he tests us to see the strength of our faith, if we'll fail or if we'll stand strong for the Lord. And those times of testing can be difficult, but they also can be humbling and they can be strengthening in our lives. So chapter 11, we have the Northern Conquest, and I kind of subtitled this one. It's the Northern Conquest, but he left nothing undone. And verse 15, um, it says, As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. A key verse, Joshua 11:15. Joshua was an aide to Moses. He was a military commander at the time of Moses, but also he was an assistant to Moses. And the Lord had commanded Moses, who in turn commanded Joshua, and Joshua held true to the commitment that he had made to Moses and ultimately to the Lord. I don't know why, but... Uh, I've been thinking a bit about our church in the last, I always think about our church. So that's nothing new, but I've been thinking a bit about our church. In my head, I want to put together a message um, that speaks about some of the reasons why I became a Calvary Chapel pastor when um, I was raised in a different denomination and my dad was a pastor in that denomination and the doors would have been open wide open for me um, in that denomination to be a pastor of that denomination and there there are three basic reasons that I learned from observing the Calvary Chapel movement but then ended up going out to California to go to the school of ministry and I also learned and and did not changed my opinion of the three things before I ever went to California. I'd already formed an opinion of three things of why Lily and I should be part of this movement. And going out to California didn't change my mind whatsoever. All it did was strengthen it. And uh, I feel that now I have a responsibility to hold on to that which has been passed on to us. Joshua from Moses had the command of the Lord passed on to him and he held on to that. He left nothing undone. And that's kind of in my heart. I want to hold on to the things that have been passed on to me being part of the Calvary Chapel movement and leave nothing undone of what the Lord has called us to. So anyways, that's a bonus. I will get to that uh, message probably sooner rather than later. I'm trying to think of when I'll do it. Um, Maybe on a Sunday morning before we get into, I was just thinking today that um, we'll kind of wrap up in John's gospel, the end of chapter 11 and the opening of chapter 12 this Sunday. 
And uh, I don't want to get into the triumphal entry because that'll be next on the plate after that. And so maybe um, in two weeks I'll, I'll speak about the, those three things and some other things that I've learned since that time. Anyways, that was a bonus. Just speaking to me, looking at the Word of God, Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did. And I think we need faithful men and women today who hear the command um, of the Lord, sometimes coming through their pastors, their spiritual leaders, and they're willing to do and to uh, walk in those commands. So we read the exploits of Joshua and Caleb. To me, it's exhilarating. I love these guys. And, and at this point, they're probably in their 80s. So we do know that in chapter 14, which we're not getting to tonight, Caleb will say, I am 85 years old and I am as strong today as I was when he's talking to Joshua, when Moses sent out the 12 spies and we walked this land. So at the age of 40, um, or maybe just a little younger at that point, but he says, I'm just as strong as I was then. Now, I'm not 85 years old, and I would never say I'm just as strong as I was when I was in my 40s. In fact, all life changed for me when I blew out my lower back at 39 years old. So if I were ever going to talk about the strength of my days, it would be prior to uh, 30, my 39th year. And then I was a strong man at that point. Now it's just all downhill. That's all you get. <laughs> but these, Joshua and Caleb, they were strong in the Lord, strong in their faith, and both, were not only in their walk, but their faith that they had in God. And they were teaching the next generation. And you think about these two men, because of their parents being disobedient to enter into the promised land, God said, everyone who's 20 and under at that point, so this is 40 plus years ago, when they first were supposed to go into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, Israel refused to enter in. God said, your children, those who are 20 and under, will enter in, but everybody else, 21 and up, you're all going to die in this wilderness. You're going to roam around here for the next 38 years, 40 years total in the wilderness until this generation is all gone except for Joshua and Caleb, which tells me that Joshua and Caleb was 20-plus years older than everyone else in their nation. So these truly were the old guys in the nation, and yet they were teaching the next generation and the generation following them how to walk and to please God. So chapter 11 summarizes the northern conquest of Israel. And so you basically, you go straight north on this conquest. If you know in your mind, picture your Bible app or look it up later on or flip to the back of your Bible, but just go straight north from Jerusalem all the way to the uh north side of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they were slightly northwest of the Sea of Galilee in some of these areas. So in the area where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry up in the Galilee, 
This kind of summarizes that area. So it's known as the Northern Conquest. I subtitled it, He Left Nothing Undone. Probably about seven years had passed by the time we get into this area, and we find that just Joshua is in tune with the Lord. It tells us in verses 1 through 5, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, and he sent to Jadab, Jabab, the king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshap, and to the kings who were the north of the mountain, to the plain of Chinnereth, and the lowlands, and the height of Dor on its west. And so this is all describing an area that's north, slightly northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And so he also called, verse 3, the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, in the mountains and the Hivites, below Hermon, and the land of Mizpah, and say they went out. So Hermon, Mount Hermon is technically um, north of Israel today, but you can go to the base of Mount Hermon in the area where the tribe of Dan would ultimately occupy. It wasn't the territory that God allotted for them, but ultimately they would take an area north of Israel, and it was at the base of Mount Hermon. So this is really, really talking about the north of Israel. So they all came, uh, verse 3, the end of verse 3, the Hivites below Hermon in the land of Mizpah, verse 4, so they went out, they and all their armies with them, and many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with a very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and they camped together at the water of Miram to fight against Israel. So when Jabin... He's the king of Hazor, and we'll learn later on that he was the head of this area. So we talk about kings. These are like royal cities. These are like significant cities. I mean, we may look at them and say he, maybe he was the mayor of the city, but he had authority um, in this area, and they were usually villages that were all attached to these cities. So they'll talk about taking a main city and other cities with them. And they would be like Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago, uh, kind of looking at it that way. Um, although we have no king in Chicago, though a mayor may wish he was a king. Anyways, um, they gathered. I mean, it was a number that's incredible. In fact, we'll get to a listing where they'll list out from the time of Moses to that of Joshua in these wars, 33 kings altogether. So this was a lot of warfare. At this time, Hazar was a strong fortified city. It covered about 200 acres and had a population of about 40,000. It sat on a trade route between Mesopotamia, the area of Iraq and Babylon, down to Egypt. And you know this, you learn about, and I'll talk about as we go through these wars, that there is a, a mountain that is east, a ridgeline that is east of Jerusalem in the country of Jordan today. And uh, it is largely unbroken except for a, a three-mile strip north of Israel, uh, in Israel, but north of the Sea of Galilee, where it flattens out. And so anybody from Babylon wanting to get to Egypt, they had a couple of ways that they could go. They could go 
straight down to Egypt, but they had to go through pretty rigorous territory, unpopulated territory, and on the east side of this ridgeline, or where it breaks there in northern Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee, they could just cut through Israel, part of that trade route. And the benefits of cutting through Israel is they could raid and pillage all the cities and villages as they went and resupply and um, do what armies did in those days. And so Jabin, the king of Hazor, was the head of this region, according to verse 10 of chapter 11. And then in this area of Miram, uh, the waters of Miram, and it's northwest of the Sea of Galilee. It had to be a, a flat area. Uh, one of the commentators said a plateau in that area. I'm not quite sure. I know that ridge line that flattens out north of Israel. There's a, a like a three-mile stretch that really flattens out. And I say this because they had chariots, and you're not going to run around with chariots in the mountains. It's just for warfare to be effective, they needed a flat area. And so this is the area that they chose. One commentator equated a chariot to that of a military tank today. So Israel was outnumbered, it seems, outmanned. And as far as the military equipment, it was beyond anything that Israel had. And even the Lord's command, as we'll read about here in verses 6 through 9, even though they're victorious, God said, would not say, and gather all those horses and chariots. He would actually say this. Listen, verse 6. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before you. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war went with him, came against them suddenly, so a surprise attack, by the waters of Miram, and they attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook of Misriroth, I like that one, and to the valley of Misvah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So God instructed them. It'd be like, I was thinking about this with uh, what happened in when our military went out of Afghanistan and uh, they ended up taking $80 billion of our military equipment a few years ago. Uh, they didn't burn them. They didn't destroy them. They're using them and probably using them against us. And this doesn't make sense. I mean, this is the best that their warfare had to offer. And God said, don't even worry about that. Just make sure the horses are hamstrung. They will be ineffective in battle and destroy, burn the chariots. Why? Because God said, you need to trust in me and not in your military might. So once again, we learn in verse 9, Joshua did to them all that the Lord had told him. 10 through 15, Joshua left nothing undone. Joshua turned back at that time. He took Hazor. He struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of those kingdoms. So 
there was the battle, it appears, unless they elected a new king, but later on we'll read about the 33 kings and they'll mention the city and the king one. They'll say the number one. And so this is the same king that gathered all the kings together. We're going to go to war against Israel. The war didn't work out, so he went back while his men are dying in that flat plain, wherever it was, getting chased by the Israelis. The king went back to Hazor. But then after that battle was done, Joshua turned back, and he began to pick up the cities of these kings. So he took Hazor, he struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. Verse 11, they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. There was none left breathing, and then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings, all their kings, Joshua took and struck them with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor, only which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of those cities and those livestock and the children of Israel took his booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left none breathing as the Lord God commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua. So Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So after their victory, they basically went back and swept up the towns of the kings who had came against them. And only the city of Hazor did he destroy with fire. But the other cities, they allowed them to remain. Israel was to occupy the land, not rebuild it again. Uh, that was one of the things. God said, you're going to have the vineyards, you're going to have the, um, the fields, the cities. All these things will be provided for you. But this one city he destroyed with fire. It was a lead city, so destroy that city, and perhaps you destroy the desire of the people to want to gather against Israel once again. So all that Moses had said to Joshua, we get one of those where Moses called Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, 7 and 8. Moses called Joshua and said to all, to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage for you will go, must go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So Joshua had that command from Moses. Be strong. Be of good courage. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. God goes before you. He will cause you to inherit the land. 16 through 23, we have a long campaign here that begins to take place. So Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, all the lowland, all the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, the, from Mount Halek to the ascent of Sire, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of 
Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. So again, Lebanon and Mount Hermon, far north, um, outside of Israel proper today. He captured all their kings and struck them down, killed them. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and all the others they took in battle. For it was the Lord who hardened their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that they might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, that they might destroy them as the Lord commanded them. So probably around 50 years earlier now, God had hardened the heart of Pharaoh that ultimately allowed the children of Israel to be freed from Egypt. Now God hardens the hearts of the people that they would continue to come against Israel in battle. Man, as I was reading this, my wife would say to me when I say man to her, she corrects me and said, I'm not a man. But that's the uh, teenager coming out of me, the excitement. Think about what's happening in Israel today and around our world and the attitudes of the people around the world toward Israelis. Perhaps once again, we see the Lord doing a work of hardening of hearts where beyond reason, it seems that Logically, you look at what happened to the Israelis on October 7th in 2023, and you would think, who would not be for Israel? But immediately it seems that, um, one, people deny that it even took place. Number two, there's the cry for the Palestinians and the protection of them. And it's often that cry, and it's the cry of the occupiers, Israel, the occupiers, and all these things taking place with the hardness of hearts. And uh, we see it in our own country. We see um, this happening on colleges' campuses as well. And it's really the absence of God and political agendas that are taking place in our world causing these things to take place. But uh, it is amazing to me. And then people spin the news like crazy. Um, Lily and I just a few weeks ago got our cable bill, and so we don't have cable TV anymore. It was finally, you know, that deal of $99 a month was gone a long time ago, and we're trying to learn life without our programs that we used to watch and really finding news, a news source. Um I think we may have done it, but um, that's been difficult for us. It's probably the biggest hurt we have is having a good news source that uh, things we're accustomed to. But I'm mentioning this because when they show the southern border and there's just numerous people coming across and what's happening in Texas, putting up this razor wire and our government trying to fight them, the feds to take it down. And uh, this conservative news channel, news channel kept showing and and this is the argument of the government, but it's for the sake of the children. And so this clip that they showed, it was always like two women and three or four kids in the water trying to get in through the razor wire. So that's dangerous, Mom. I wouldn't try to do that with my children. 
but they always showed that clip. Any other time, they would be showing a horde of young men about 20 years old coming through with no kids in sight, but they were trying to spin a, a story, spin an agenda, and so the horde of young 20-somethings coming through didn't fit 20-something men, military-age men, didn't fit the narrative that they needed. So every time they spun that story, it was always the two moms with a few kids and uh, trying to pull at the heartstrings. So in our country, we're being manipulated. We know that. But there's also a spiritual thing going on as well. And we read about that here. God did some hardening. Is God doing some hardening today? Probably. At what extent, at what point, I have no idea. But I think we should strive to be spiritually in tune and make sure that it's not our hearts being hardened, but that we're recognizing the voice of the Lord. We know in Romans 2, verses 5 and 6, God said, in accordance to the hardness and the impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Impenitent is what I should have said. The impenitent heart, a heart that refuses to repent. And there are many hearts like that before the Lord and in this world today. Have you found that living in this world has had a hardening effect on your heart? Be careful. God may eventually bind up, make firm that condition of your heart. On the other hand, is the hardness of this world making you soft towards Jesus, resulting not only in bringing you in salvation, but causing you to desire to walk in obedience to the Lord? That's when we see the things going on in our world It should be forcing us to turn more rapidly to the Lord and desire to do as well. So he lists off a few other cities, 21 and 22. At that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debrai, from Anib, from all the mountains of Judah, from all around the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities, left none of the Anakim. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They only remained in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod. So Anakim in the Hebrew means long necks. It's referring to the giants. And so Og, the king of Bashan, Um, These were giants that Moses, when he was living, they struck. And here it tells us Joshua, he cut off and destroyed all the giants who were in the hill countries, in the mountainous region north of Judah. But down in the area of Gaza today, where the um, Philistines would occupy, these are three Philistines, Cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, three of the five cities that's named in the book of Judges. The giants remain there. One of the greatest we know of Goliath, as far as written in Scripture, the story of the account of David and Goliath. And so they were going against giants. Remember, uh, before that first generation that came out, they said there are giants in the land. And there were. And Joshua cut them off. 
Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had said to Moses. Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And the land rested from war. You know what? My throat is a little scratchy tonight, so we're going to hold off to get into chapter 12. But there's a few things I just want us to look at before we close out in prayer. God had hardened the hearts of these kings that they should come against Israel. And ultimately that Israel could, and God, utterly destroy these nations. These nations that God had prophesied to Abraham well over between five and six hundred years. I think it's closer to the six hundred years, saying that the... um, that the sin of the Amorites had not yet been fulfilled in the land. He gave them an extra 400 years. By the time uh, Joshua enters into land, it's getting closer to a 600-year point at this time. Over 400 years, though, of disobedience to the Lord and finally came to judgment. And so a lot of people look at this. It's more than 400, closer to 600 They think, how could God do this? Why is God so cruel? But God gave them 600 years. Our country hasn't been around. And we look at our country today and we think, Lord, you you probably got some work that you need to do in this country because it's getting bad. And we pray that God would send revival. That's the work we want to see. But what if it's judgment? So their judgment, from our perspective, might be considered long overdue. But judgment finally came, and God used Israel as a form of his judgment. So a few things to think about as we close out tonight. Joshua was obedient to the commands of his predecessor, Moses, who had been faithful to set the example of obedience before Joshua. Um one of the reasons I'm a probably a pastor um, first great example of a pastor in my life was my own dad and uh, he was faithful in the ministry that the Lord had called him to and I you know I was a PK I saw the hardships of pastoring a church and uh, the I mentioned this but uh probably heard it on the radio, our radio show. I go through all the messages to make sure what we're broadcasting currently doesn't have things that are so dated that, and and they are, but I try to clean it up as much as I can. So I speed it up really fast. I sound like Mickey Mouse. My wife will say that. You're listening to Mickey Mouse again. All I want to do is, like, catch keywords, but... Um, I'd found when my mom passed away a tape of the dedication of my dad's church. Um, And so they made a cassette, a little thing about this big. It had tape inside it. You'd put it in a player. We don't have any of those things anymore. But found a cassette of that dedication service. And the pastor, uh, at one point, he said, underneath every Baptist church is the pastor who founded it, in a sense, that it kills the man Um, and I believe that it could have perhaps 
helped my dad go to an early grave. I know he had a heart condition, but I know the church weighed heavy on his heart. But I've had good examples like my dad and Pastor Chuck and others. And I look for those examples, and I hope to be that example for others. Obedience to the Lord knows no age limit. Joshua at this time was probably in his 80s, and yet he was in the battle. Joshua was obedient to the Lord by destroying his enemies' horses and chariots. Now, he could argue with the Lord, saying, Lord, this is kind of the best military equipment that's out there at this time, and you want me to burn the chariots? This doesn't even make sense. But he was obedient and trusted in the Lord. And sometimes the Lord causes us to do things that might not make sense. Uh, Dave Rapoon is a worship leader here many years ago, for many years and just uh, retired a few years back and living in downstate of us now. But he often would refer to me wanting to build a radio station in our church and saying that just doesn't make sense. And perhaps not. And yet uh, that radio station now can be heard around the world. And uh, God is using it for his glory. Um, We've had uh, an individual visiting on Wednesday nights and attends a different church. And uh, he's coming because of the radio. So even this year, we've and the toward the end of last year, we've seen fruit from that. So Joshua was obedient to the Lord. Joshua was obedient to divide the land as an inheritance to Israel. This Joshua could have said, "But this is going great. I think I'll just be just call me King Joshua from now on." God was king and he knew his place. And so he did as the Lord commanded him. And then in verse 6, we have this phrase, but the Lord. And I love phrases like this when it seems that the army of Israel, enemies of Israel were gathering against Israel. And then we have that phrase, but the Lord. God has something else in store. And we need to remember that the Lord, as he did for Joshua and Israel, so will do for those who put their faith and their trust in him and walk in obedience in his ways. 1 Samuel 15:22 says, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams." So not just Lord, look what I've done, look at the sacrifice, but walking in obedience, that's better to the Lord than any sacrifice that we could give. 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's why Joshua could overcome and the children of Israel could overcome. And it's why we can overcome today. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that you've allowed us to look at tonight. Here at the end of Joshua chapter 10 through chapter 11, And we thank you, Lord, for these things that you teach us. Help us to have the faith of a Joshua, to walk in obedience, to do those things that you've called us to do. 
May we be faithful, Lord. We pray that you would come soon. We ask the Lord, if you go to Terry, please send revival and let us be part of it. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.